open your Bibles, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 5. How many of you enjoy listening to sermons? Okay. I expected a 100% enthusiastic response, because I can see everybody in the room today. I, I enjoy listening to good sermons. I, I grew up in a Christian home. My father was a pastor for 50 years, and so I've heard many, many, many sermons during my lifetime. When I was young, I used to go to Bible conferences, and my dad would take me, and we would sit there, and we'd listen for hour after hour as preachers rose to speak. And whenever you go to a conference, usually you have there the best speakers that are called upon, the best preachers who get up to preach. But many times, the best preaching is not determined by what the preacher really has to say, but it has more to do with the the way that he delivers the sermon, not the content, but the way that he delivers it. And so if he can tell a few jokes and say his sermon in a very witty style, then people will go away and they will say, oh, what a great sermon that that really was. But when you go back to the great messages that were preached throughout history, those messages were always judged on their content. We can't hear those sermons being preached. We didn't have anything to put them on recordings, and so you can't hear the greatest sermons that were ever preached, except maybe a few that were preached after the beginning of the 20th century. So the only thing that we can do is read those sermons. We can't hear the delivery, when all we can look at is the content. Then does the content, does it expound the Word of God? Does it teach God's Word in a truly meaningful way? And that's what it is that determines a great sermon. All of us have, or some of you, I suppose, have read uh, Jonathan Edwards' great classic sermons, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it's said that when Edwards preached that sermon, he read it directly from his manuscript in a monotone, never raised or lowered his voice, uh, just in a monotone. But when you read the sermon, you're struck by the expressions that Jonathan Edwards gave and the very clearness of his thoughts. Great sermons and great oratory is always determined by the content. One of the greatest speeches that was ever delivered was Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. The President of the United States rose up to speak. He took out two pieces of paper from his pocket where he had scribbled some notes and spoke for all of two minutes. You're not going to be that lucky today, I promise you. But he spoke for two minutes and... Again, it was the clearness of his thoughts and exactly what needed to be said at that particular moment is what made the Gettysburg Address such a great speech. Well, today we're going to study the greatest sermon that was ever preached. This is the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And this is the best-known sermon of all the sermons that have ever preached in the history of Christianity. There are more books that have been written about the Sermon on the Mount to explain it than any other sermon that was written. There are even books written to explain the books that were written to explain the Sermon on the Mount. So this is truly a great sermon. But the peculiar thing about my sermon today is we're not even going to read the Sermon on the Mount. I'm just going to tell you some things about it. What I want you to do is I want you to go home after the points that I've made today, and I want you to read the sermon for yourself. It's Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. It won't take you very long to read it. I want you to read it through, think about the things that I'm going to say today, and then over the next several weeks, we're going to begin an in-depth study 
of this Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to spend probably even a few months preaching about the Sermon on the Mount. So I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we're going to read just the preliminary verses. I told you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, but I actually want you to back up just a little bit so we'll get a running start into this. If you look in chapter 4 at verse number 23, this is where we want to begin. Matthew 4, verse number 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Heavenly Father, as we approach the greatest sermon that was ever preached, I know that we're terribly inadequate to explain it. There are great truths that are taught here and some of the most profound things that were ever said in all the history of the world are contained in this sermon. Lord, as we consider some things today, I pray that you might open up our hearts and as each hearer goes home today or or during this week and reads this sermon, I hope that they will come back with a renewed appreciation, with some sense of how difficult that it is to live by the principles that Jesus taught, and yet he expects every one of us without exception to live by what he says. All his people are to live by this sermon. Bless us as we enter into this sermon today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, I want to refer you again to this wonderful trip that Gary and I made to Israel last year. And I hope you will forgive me for so many references, but it meant quite a bit to me and to him as well. And as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, I'm going to refer to it often. One of the places that we visited while we were there was on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, which is the traditional site for the preaching of the Sermon on the Mount. I have a picture for you today that was taken from the spot where Jesus preached the message. It's a very beautiful spot. Of course, the Sea of Galilee is smaller than it was in the time of Jesus because of all the uh, irrigation that's taken place in the lower Jordan Valley. So much of it has been drained off. But Jesus sat down on a high place there and he began to teach his disciples. There's also the next picture that I have for you, a church that's been built on this spot. And any place that you go in Israel where a significant thing took place in the life of Jesus, they built a church there. At first I thought that was a bad thing to do because it covered up things, but really if it hadn't been for all those churches that are built, then we wouldn't even know where these spots were. But Jesus chose this spot to sit down and he began to teach his disciples some very important principles that he expected them to live by. There were multitudes that came to hear him. We just saw that in chapter number 4, in the end of that chapter. And many of these people came and listened to him, but the sermon that he preached really wasn't for all of those people. It was for only for people that would follow him. 
In the next few minutes, I'm going to talk about that very important, important point. But although there were thousands of people who came to hear this sermon, there were only a few that were intended in that audience that that were actually intended to be the recipients of the message that he gave. The Sermon on the Mount poses some very difficult problems for us. Uh, People are very much divided about who the sermon was actually intended for. And so I want to start with that this morning, and that's the concerns about the sermon. Some concerns about it, because you can read through this sermon in a very short period of time, and before you get down to the end, you're struck by these very high demands that Jesus makes in this sermon. And I suppose that the very first question that we would ask after we read it is, is Jesus really serious about this? Does he really expect Christians to live the things that he says in this sermon? Surely, what's written here, or what's said here, must have been intended for a different audience because we don't know any Christians that could possibly do what Jesus says. It can't be for ordinary Christians. And so there are some who say, who will raise the objection, and say that this sermon is only for the future. And that's a very popular idea about the Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus did not intend it for Christians today. It may have been intended for Jews of Jesus' time if they had received the kingdom when Jesus came. And these people believe that Jesus made an offer of the kingdom to the Jews, and if he had, or if they had enshrined him right then as the king, then these are principles that he would have enabled them to live by. And so, in essence, that he was saying to them, the kingdom will come to you right now if you'll let it. But we know that they didn't. They rejected him. And so people then believe, since they rejected Jesus the first time, and as he came to set up a kingdom, that he must be going to come later and set up a future kingdom. And so these things that are taught here are going to be principles to be lived by in that future kingdom. And so it's really not for us. Well, there are three significant problems with that viewpoint. The first one is that there was no physical kingdom in the first advent. The problem here is that Jesus did not intend to set up a kingdom when he first came. He didn't hope that the Jews would receive him. Jesus already knew that he wouldn't. That was prophesied in the Old Testament many, many years before, hundreds of years before. The Bible says that he would be rejected by his own people And he would be crucified, and then also he would be a sacrifice for our sins. And so if the Jews had received him as a king right then, then they wouldn't have had him crucified. The Romans would have had no cause to crucify Jesus because it was at the insistence of the Jews that Jesus was taken to the cross. And so then, if the kingdom had come at that particular time, Jesus would not have gone to the cross. He would not have died for our sins. And if Jesus had not died for sin, there would be no hope for any person who's in this room today. Jesus must go to the cross. He must bear the sins of his people. The Bible says there must be shedding of blood or else there is no forgiveness of sins. The second problem with that viewpoint is that some teachings that are given here do not apply in the millennial kingdom. They don't apply in this future kingdom that's coming. The second problem here is that there are things that Jesus said that simply will not fit in with a millennial kingdom. Those of you that have been with us in our Sunday night series on the book of Revelation, you know that we fully expect 
that Jesus is coming back to this earth, that he will establish a kingdom. He will rule and he will reign from Jerusalem. He will rule there for a thousand years. And in that kingdom, there will be perfect peace. Uh, Jesus and will mete out perfect justice. The scriptures prophesied that there would be a time when there is no war. There will be no hurt upon the people of God. It says that even in the animal kingdom, there's going to be peace. And all of you know that familiar passage that says that the lion will wet, lay down with the lamb. But as we read the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus says here that there's coming a time of terrible persecution for the people of God. For instance, if you look down at verse number 44 in this fifth chapter, here he says, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That verse has no application in the millennial kingdom. We're not looking for Christ's kingdom to come upon this earth where there will be persecution. I mean, what hope is there for the people of God if we're not protected from those very things? The millennial kingdom, when it comes, is going to be a wonderful place. The life principles that we learn in the Sermon on the Mount, they can be applied there. Those are for the future millennial kingdom as well. But there are many applications that we find in the Sermon on the Mount that simply will not work in a millennial kingdom. And so we can't pass this off and say, well, the the Sermon on the Mount is for a future time. When Jesus comes back and establishes that kingdom, then we'll be able to live by the principles of the Sermon on the Mount. And so those are two very significant problems with saying that the sermon is for a future time. But there's yet a third difficulty that we find, and that is that the rest of the New Testament teaches the very same principles. Everything that we find taught here on the Sermon on the Mount has been taught in other places. The New Testament, all of these sayings of Jesus have been said by Jesus again, or they've been said by the apostles When Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship, when he speaks of following him, he's giving lessons about the present church age. He's talking to us. And so we can't escape this and not be concerned about it and say these things are too difficult. It's not a sermon for us. There's no excuse for us to say that Jesus gave this for the future and we are incapable of living these things at the present time. So search the Scriptures and you'll find out that everything that Jesus said in this sermon was said again. There's no shortage in the studies of Scriptures that are supports for the demands that Jesus makes for even members of Berean Baptist Church sitting in this room today. And then there are some who are very concerned about this sermon because they say that the sermon is legalistic. They believe that Jesus is telling the people, here's a way that you can be saved. You can live by these principles, and if you'll just do this, you can be saved. And so they say that's legalism. And what Jesus is doing is he's restating the Old Testament law. He's giving us a way of salvation in which he says that we can keep all of these commandments, and that's the way that we'll be saved. One thing that ought to be abundantly clear about this sermon when you read it, and remember this as you do, that this is not a restatement of the Mosaic Law. Jesus is speaking here by a higher authority. He doesn't go back to the Old Testament and say, the Old Testament is the authority upon which I speak. His authority is higher. His authority is his own authority. Jesus is the authority for what he said. So over and over again, he'll refer to the Mosaic Law, and he'll say things like, but I say, 
And again and again, he says, you have heard that it hath been said. And then he follows that up. But I say. And so Jesus is speaking by his own authority. And the authority rests in his statements. He doesn't restate the law. What Jesus is doing is intensifying God's law with his authority. And so he's showing us that Old Testament law was never good enough to save us. It was never intended to save us. And Paul said the very same thing when he wrote the book of Galatians in chapter 3. He said, is the law against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been given a law which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. It was never the law's intent to save us. Christ would not then impose a higher standard of law that could save us if we cannot keep the lower standard. If you can't keep the lower standard, it's already been given in the Ten Commandments. How are you going to keep the higher standard that Christ gives in the Sermon on the Mount? Now, the intent of that, then, is to drive us to the point that we realize that we are totally helpless to keep God's commands. The place that we have to go to for this is to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to go to the one who in faith, through faith in him, has satisfied God's law for us. And that's what Jesus did through his perfect life. He satisfied God's law for us. And so we have to abandon all hope that we have in ourselves, and we have to rely completely on him. Do you understand that that is exactly what salvation is? Salvation is when I realize my total helplessness. I can't do anything for God. I can never be good enough to please God. It's when I understand that that I go to the foot of the cross. I'm driven to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, and I look up to him as the only one who's able to save me. My help comes from him. Well, friends, the Sermon on the Mount is not legalism. We're talking here about a life that is lived by faith. It's a life of grace And it's found only in Jesus Christ. Then there's a third concern about this sermon. Some say that the sermon is for everybody. Now, that's the viewpoint that what Jesus has given us is a very powerful set of principles to live by. And so if we can just get everybody to live by these principles, then everything will be okay. So people talk about things that are said here like like peace. Jesus said that we're to live in peace with all people. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. He talks about loving your neighbor. He speaks of non-retaliation. There are sayings here that we find about judging others. There are things in here that are about hypocrisy. And so if we could just live this way, then the world would be a much better place. Now, do you see a problem with this? What people are trying to do is to put into force the principles of Jesus without using Jesus. What they've done here, they've got the viewpoint, is that Jesus is a pretty good fellow. He has some pretty good ideas, but really Jesus is nothing more than just a little bit better philosopher. Jesus is a little bit better Gandhi. Or Jesus is a little bit better Mohammed. He's a little bit better Mother Teresa. Friends, Jesus is not a little bit better anything. Jesus is Almighty God. You can't use his principles without him. None of it works without him. And and so you'll see that as you read this, that you're doomed to defeat. Surely you're going to understand that you are doomed to defeat, to try to live the things that are in the Sermon on the Mount if you don't know Jesus Christ. It's impossible for you to do it. So that's why there is no peace on earth. 
That's why there's narcissism instead of love for our neighbors. That's why there are false judgments. That's why there is hypocrisy. The world keeps trying to apply the principles of the Sermon on the Mount without trying Jesus, without knowing him. And really what we're talking about here is not principles anyway. As you know, Christianity is Christ. You can't separate Christ from Christianity. You can't separate him from what he says here in the Sermon on the Mount. You can't take the principles and live, live them without him. So the Sermon on the Mount is not for everybody. It's only for those who have received Christ, who know him personally as Savior. Now, thousands came to hear him speak, but these words are only for his disciples. Now, that couldn't be any clearer than as you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ and you see people begin to drop out. First, there were a few who dropped out. Then there were hundreds who dropped out. And then there were thousands who would not follow him any longer. And the reason they didn't was because the demands were too difficult, the way was too hard, the gate was too narrow, and so these people fell out. They weren't disciples. They were just people who thought it sounded good. And if we can just do what he says, the the world will be a better place. And so they tried it without trying him. And I would submit to you that there may be people right here in our congregation today that you are also trying Christianity out but you found out that it's too hard for you. Continually, you are beset by your sins. You continually live in those. You go back to them. And the reason that you do is because you are trying to live the faith without having the faith. And this is a sad part about what I was talking about in our Sunday school class today, about the way the gospel is preached today. Many, many times it is a wrong gospel because there is not a demand for people to follow Christ. There is no discipleship involved in it. There is no sacrifice of self. There is no giving up. There is no denying myself for the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we just come to church and we listen and we play church and we go home and we do the same things that we always did. It won't work. It won't work with the Sermon on the Mount. And before we're through with this, you will either understand the futility and you will drop out from it, or you'll do the only thing that is possible. You will have to come to faith in Christ so that you can live this sermon by faith. It is not for everybody. It's only for those who are sincere believers, those who are followers, those who are disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, the second thing that I wanted to note today is the challenges of the sermon. Now, it should be apparent by the concerns that I've just mentioned, that there are challenges in this sermon. It's not a sermon for the future, and so we're challenged then to live this in the present. It's not a legalistic sermon, so it's going to remove all possibility that we can live this in the flesh. And so this is a sermon that transcends everything that we can do in our flesh. And then it's a sermon that's not for everybody, and so there's a challenge that those who are going to live it to find out how they can live it. So let's start with the reverse of those statements. Those who can't live it are challenged to find out how they can live it. So what does that mean? Well, first it means that a new birth is needed. A new birth is needed. If I were to say to you today, this is a sermon for everybody and everybody can live it, then you would assume that if you're living and you're breathing, if you've been born, then you're a candidate for this sermon. And if that's true, then... I could write a letter to my congressman and I could say to him, now here's a set of laws that I've found. These are things that were said by Jesus Christ. And if you'll just take these 
laws that Jesus gave, if you will enact them, if you will pass legislature that says that everybody must live by these laws, will solve all of our problems, and the world will be a better place. And then Congress would pass legislation, and everybody in America would be subject to the laws that are in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you know that's already been tried? We haven't tried it in America because actually America was founded. One of the reasons that we were founded is because there were people who thought that they could impose the Sermon on the Mount on others. They thought that they could make people live by this. And so they thought if they did it, it would straighten people up. And you know what it did? It led to nothing but religious persecution. It even further corrupted those who tried to make others To live by it. Those who tried to impose the law became corrupted. You can't force God's law on people who have been born. They don't have it in them. They don't have the nature to live by God's laws. Christ's kingdom is never going to be established by force. That's part of the fallacy of the thinking of the uh, people today, conservative Christians today, trying to enforce God's law upon people who don't know Jesus Christ. You can't do that. The way to live the Sermon on the Mount is not to be born, it's to be born again. And that's the message that Jesus gave Nicodemus. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not open for everybody. It's opened only those who have been born again. And so these things that we read here, can't be lived unless the person is born again. You have to be somebody who's been changed. That old nature of sin has to be taken care of. God must put a new nature in your soul. The keeping of the commandments won't do that. Otherwise, Nicodemus was a perfect candidate for all of this. I mean, Nicodemus was a man who lived by rituals, a man who lived by law, who lived by commands. He thought that he was a pretty good fellow. He did everything to the best of his ability. Even the Apostle Paul tried to do the very same thing so that he said that if anybody wants to live by the law and they think that they can be saved by the law, nobody can keep it better than I can because I've done it. I've exercised it. I've lived in the law. I've lived that way. If anybody thinks they can be saved by it, so much more me. But then he finally came to the conclusion that all of those things are useless. They're refuse. They're dung. It's worthless. It doesn't count. It never counts as righteousness towards God because the only righteousness that counts is the righteousness which is by faith. It comes by being born again. And so the challenge to live the Sermon on the Mount is the challenge to be born again. And you're as helpless to do that as you were to be born of your mother. You are as helpless to be born again as you were to be born into the world the first time. The only way that you can be born again is that Christ, the Holy Spirit, comes into you. He brings you to faith and to repentance. He causes you. He gives you the ability to believe. And then you're ready for the kingdom of God. Don't anybody here think that you are going to leave this world headed for the kingdom of God if you are not right now in his spiritual kingdom. That means you must be born again. Now, the second thing that we see here is that a new standard is set. This is not a legalistic sermon because the flesh can't even live by that previous standard that was given. And so if you think that people are challenged to keep the Ten Commandments, then you just wait and see what happens when Jesus puts Ten Commandments on steroids. Look look at the 27th verse of this fifth chapter. 
Verse number 27. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Ten Commandments said, Don't commit adultery. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands today and say, Have you ever committed adultery? I think there are probably people in this room today who will say, Well, Pastor, no, I have never committed adultery. I'm a faithful husband. I'm a faithful wife. I have never cheated on my mate. I wouldn't do that. I'm a totally faithful person. And I would say to you, marvelous, great. Fidelity is a wonderful standard for you to live by. The only problem is that standard isn't high enough. It wasn't high enough for Jesus because he said, if you've even had one moment of lust in your heart, then you're already guilty. I suspect then that all of our hands would go down. The preacher himself would have to crawl underneath the pulpit. And that's because the standard is too high for us to live in the flesh. And Jesus never expected that we could. The only way that we can live this is by divine power. You see, Christ does not call for righteousness. Christ calls for pure righteousness. You know, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of most people, fundamental misunderstanding. Most people think that righteousness is on a sliding scale. Some people have more and some people have left less. Fine, upstanding people who go to church, they have lots of righteousness. The bum out on the street, he doesn't have very much of it. And so we have a sliding scale of righteousness. And the problem with that is, it's not our comparative righteousness. The righteousness that the Bible speaks of is Christ righteousness. He is divine Pure righteousness. Doesn't the Bible say about him that in him is no sin, there is no guile? And so Jesus could sit there teaching the Sermon on the Mount over and over, hour after hour, delineating all the principles, telling you how to live without one moment of blushing. He could sit there and say, I have never had even a moment, a split second of any lust in my heart. That's divine righteousness. That's what he requires. So the standard is too high. It drives us to utter despair. And so Paul wrote in Galatians 3, verse 24, Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Did you know that the Bible teaches that the law itself is enough to show us our inadequacies? How much more the higher standard that Christ's given? You can't do it. I can't do it. We need Jesus to do this for us. And so either the Sermon on the Mount will lead you to Jesus Christ or what you will try to do, you will try to go around him and when you do, you will be headlong into hell. You will travel headlong into hell. What more can he say? What more can he do? Because what Christ has done, his righteousness, his perfect righteousness, stands as a roadblock for you to get into heaven. You can't get into heaven without going straight through Christ's righteousness. It can't be done. Now, lastly, then, the challenge of the Sermon on the Mount is that a new outlook is needed. I said this is not a sermon for the future. It's for right now and for right here. And so this sermon is a challenge for your life. Now, think about it. I mean, all of us, we've been conditioned to think that the way that we can be happy is to serve ourselves. Let's take care of number one. Keep pursuing the car and the house and the career and the retirement. 
Keep after all of those things, and that's what will make you happy. Well, back up to chapter 3 in the book for just a minute, and there's a man there by the name of John the Baptist. He had no chariot. He was Grizzly Adams living out in the wilderness with no house. His career was that he preached without pay. And folks, his retirement came a little bit too early because they chopped his head off. There wasn't much in the life of John the Baptist that there's any one of us here that we would call him a great success. And yet Jesus said about him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Now the challenge of the Sermon on the Mount is to change your thinking. Now remember, we're talking about Christians here. It's not a sermon for everybody. And so Christians must change their thinking. What Jesus did was to take these disciples up on the mount to teach them. They were already saved. And what he was doing here, he's reorienting their thinking. He has a kingdom. And if you're going to be in his kingdom, you have to think like him. You have to live by the laws of his kingdom. And so he speaks of things here like loving your enemies. And some of these guys were zealots. The zealots were particularly hostile towards Roman occupation. And what they were trying to do all the time was get a big enough group together that they could overthrow Rome and throw them out of Israel. They weren't too high on loving your enemies. As Christians, Jesus said that you're going to gain the immediate scorn of the world. But then he followed that up by saying it's good. It's good for you when people speak evil of you, for great is your reward in heaven. What are Christians doing today? We're looking for the reward right now. And so that's why there are many Christians today who fall into this health, wealth, prosperity, gospel nonsense. It's because they want it right now. Waiting for it's not good enough for them. Then what about forgiveness? Jesus said, forgive men their trespasses. We're not interested in forgiveness. We're interested in getting even. Then he says in chapter, chapter 6, in verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. You understand what that is? That is direct confrontation with the American way of life. The house, the car, the career, they're all here right now, and that's what we're determined is going to make us happy. This is a challenge for a new outlook. We have to see things his way and not our way. So, folks, that's where we're headed with the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to climb up on this mountain with Jesus. We're going to sit down at his feet, and we're going to start to learn what the kingdom of God is really all about. And I suspect that there will be many in our congregation Many who will come and hear these sermons, and they're going to be shocked to find out what the kingdom of God is really all about. And we're going to learn who's really living in the kingdom of God. Let me close with this thought today. The kingdom is wherever Jesus is. Did Jesus establish a physical kingdom? Well, we know that he didn't. But Jesus did establish a kingdom. What he did, he established it in the heart of his people. He came to change hearts. And when the king is in his kingdom, new life will flow from a new heart. The change has to come from the inside out. And so I'm telling you that keeping external commandments will never make you righteous in the sight of God. It will never make you right for the kingdom of God. But once your heart has been changed by Jesus Christ, 
then you'll live his life by faith and the external man, the external person will change. Now, if you're wondering, as we look around and we see things that go on with our young people, things that go on with our adults, and we don't see very much change taking place, we see the wrong activities that they do, we see the wrong kinds of dress that people wear, we see all the places that people go that they shouldn't. I'm not going to give you a list of rules and regulations. I'll simply tell you that kingdom living means that you're changed on the inside, which will show itself on the outside. So this is the challenge of the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to go home. I want you to read it. And I want you to understand. I want you to see what the, where the power of Christ can lead you. This is kingdom thinking from kingdom people. And that's where we want to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. The Bible is important to us. The Sermon on the Mount is so very difficult, impossible for someone who doesn't know you as Savior. For every person in this room today who claims that they are born again child of God, this sermon can be lived because you give us the power to do it. We'll never do it in our flesh, but we have the power to live it according to the Holy Spirit. I do know this, Lord, that as we study this, as we learn it, as we apply it, that this church will be a transformed church. We'll look differently. We'll be differently. We'll have different desires, different attitudes. We'll want to worship. We'll want to love. We won't be the same people that we were before. Lord, I just pray that you'd stir up the hearts of your people as we go into this study. And bless this invitation today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.